0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe. Hi, and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. If you thought today's British royal family was mired in scandal, then you ain't heard nothing yet. This is the story of Prince Ernest Augustus and murder in the royal palace. Before we begin, a trigger warning. This episode includes graphic descriptions of violence and discussion of suicide. It is the very early hours of the 31st of May, 1810. The red brick St. James's Palace in the heart of London slumbers in darkness. The palace is the main residence of reigning King George III's large brood of adult offspring. One of these royal children, the eighth of fifteen, is Prince Ernest Augustus. Duke of Cumberland The thirty-nine-year-old Duke lies asleep, alone, in his palace apartments. That is, until about a quarter to three in the morning, when he is suddenly, violently awoken by two blows to his head. His first thought was that a bat had somehow got into the room and was beating him about the head. He was hit again, and then again, and through the blows he heard a hissing sound. Then, awful realisation dawned. The dim light of a lantern glowing in the fireplace caught the reflection of steel flashing above him. The duke raised his hands to shield his face from another strike as he frantically scrambled out of his bed. As he did so, he was cut on the hands and legs. He could not see anyone in the room. The light only revealed a letter on the bedside table, now splattered with blood. The silent attacker kept hacking at the duke's legs as he searched in the darkness for his alarm bell. Unable to find it, he cried out to his page, who was sleeping in the next room. Kneel! Kneel! I am murdered! Only a wainscot partition separated the duke's bedroom from that of the page in waiting. In moments, the page Cornelius Neal was at the Duke's bedroom door. There he found the wounded Duke, who told him there was a murderer in his bedroom. Neil charged into the room and seized a poker from the fireplace as a makeshift weapon. But the room was empty. Another door, leading to the so-called yellow room, was wide open. The attacker's escape route. As Neale advanced through that doorway, he stumbled upon a sword lying on the floor. He picked it up, and asked the duke's permission to pursue his assailant. But the duke said no. He was bleeding heavily. He could not be left alone. So Neil helped the duke walk to the porter's room, where the porter, Benjamin Smith, was woken up, and ordered not to let anyone leave the building. Faint from loss of blood, the duke then staggered back to his bed, and Neil set about rousing the other servants of the household with cries of murder. Soon a throng of attendants were crowding into the duke's bedroom, including the king's surgeon Mr. Home, who set about attending to his many wounds. But there was one noticeable absence. Another of the duke's pages, Joseph Sellis, had not come, so the porter-smith and Neil's wife, who was housekeeper for the duke, were sent to find him. They first went to Sellis's bedroom, but after banging on the door and shouting through the keyhole, they were met only with silence so Smith went to the apartment of Sellis's family, which was in another part of the palace. Here the door was opened by one of the Sellis children, who told him that his father was definitely sleeping in the Duke's apartment that night. So back Smith went to the Duke's apartments, and along with Mrs. Neal and another servant, Henry Grasslin, took a circacious route through the yellow room, the ballroom, and several other rooms, to reach a second door that led into Sellis's bedroom. About ten minutes had passed since they had tried the first bedroom door. Now as the three approached the room again, they were alarmed to hear a gurgling noise that sounded like water bubbling in a man's throat, and then a groan of pain. The three froze in terror. Celis was being murdered too. They dared not enter the bedroom, but instead ran back through the apartments for assistance. It fell to soldier Joseph Crichton, a sergeant in the king's guard, to finally find Celis. He had been called from the guard room at about 3.30 a.m. Entering the duke's apartments with two or three other soldiers, he found a good deal of blood on the stairs. Having been directed to Celis's room, they entered and discovered the body of Celis lying on his back on the bed. His throat was cut right across, down to the bone. A bloody razor with a white handle lay on the floor two feet from the bed. There was no sign of a struggle. Sellus's body was drenched in blood, and his arms hung limply down his sides. A coroner's jury assembled the next day, the 1st of June, at the palace. The body and bedroom of Sellus were examined, and testimonies from anyone and everyone at the palace were taken, from the duke down to the kitchen-maid. The verdict was swift. Sellus had attacked the duke, and, having failed to kill him, had fled to his own room and killed himself. Unusually, the jury returned a verdict of philo de se, suicide while in his right mind. By the early nineteenth century, in cases of suicide, a verdict of non compus mentis, temporary insanity, was usually given, as philo de se was a crime. The punishment for this crime was the forfeiture of the criminal's, so the victim's, property to the monarch, the duke's father. It seemed an open and shut case, Sellis had keys, giving him access throughout the duke's apartments. The doors leading from the duke's room to Celis's room, which were usually locked by the servants at night, were open. Slippers with his name in them were found in a cupboard next to the duke's room, where it was concluded the attacker had been hiding in wait. There was no sign of a struggle on Celis's body. No one was caught trying to leave the palace. No other suspicious person was seen. Cellus was judged to be an ungrateful servant who had viciously attacked his master, and then committed suicide. But was this true? (music) The brief account of the night's events you have heard was based mostly on the Duke of Cumberland's own testimony, with some supplemental details from the accounts of Mr. and Mrs. Neal. With no witnesses to the attack, we rely entirely on the Duke's own account for how he received his wounds, and we rely a lot on Neil as the only other person who witnessed what happened in the minutes immediately after the Duke was wounded. Yet, as I began reading the other witness testimonies, the case struck me rather like a Hercule Poirot story. At first glance, the facts seem clear, the story straightforward, but once we start to look closer. Once we go through the specific details of the individual witness testimonies, we find inconsistencies, gaps, unanswered questions, points that might make Parrow uncomfortable with accepting the easy solution to these events. In short, all the pieces do not fit together. Nor was everyone at the time satisfied with the jury's verdict. Rumours and accusations would dog the Duke of Cumberland for years. Rumours that he knew more about Celis' death than he admitted. Rumours that Celis had not killed himself, that he had in fact actually been killed by the Duke, and that the Duke's wounds were self-inflicted, with the help of Neil, to cover up his crimes. So, what was the truth? I'll let you come to your own conclusions, as we peel back the onion and go over all the evidence. That evidence, the verbatim witness testimonies, were printed in newspapers in 1810 for the consumption, horror and delight of an astonished public. Then, as now, Scandal in the Royal Family sells papers. Those newspapers, which are now digitised on the British Newspaper Archive, are my source for today's episode, as well as a pamphlet describing the events published in 1810 and some satirical prints of the time digitised by the British Museum. The inquest into the night's horrifying events left no stone unturned. As well as interviewing everyone who knew Sellis at the palace, they tracked down people from his past, before he worked for the Duke, to paint a fuller picture of his character. Joseph Sellis was Italian. When he came to England, I do not know, but in the mid-1790s he entered the employment of a John Barker church as valet. John Barker church was a businessman, politician and gambler, whose colourful life warrants its own episode. Unfortunately, we can only touch on him briefly here. When he hired Sellis as his valet, Church was living in Berkeley Square, in London's wealthy West End. In early 1797, however, he moved across the Atlantic to New York. He was no stranger to America. He worked as a supplier to the Continental Army during the American War of Independence, and he was also married to American socialite Angelica Schuler whose sister was married to none other than Alexander Hamilton, yes, founding father of musical fame. Church brought many of his London household servants with him to New York. Besides Sellis, these included maids Sarah Wilson and Martha Perkins, and groom Robert Luttman. All three would come forward in 1810 to offer their recollections of Sellis, and their recollections were not flattering. Sarah Wilson described Sellis as a morose, malicious man. The former servants had all been surprised to hear Celis had entered the service of a prince, as he had always been a vocal anti-monarchist. He was heard at the servants' table in New York to say, Damn the English king and all the royal family, the government and all kings. It is a pity they are not done away with. Sellis had even once boasted that he had thrown a stone at King George III as he entered the House of Commons. As Robert Lutman put it, he does not think there could have been one more disaffected to the government and royal family than Celis was, and Lutman was at a loss to think who could have given Celis a reference for his royal appointment. As shocked as his colleagues had been by his anti-monarchism, in the context of the place and time, Celis's views were hardly extraordinary. The newly independent United States had rejected the rule of a king just twenty years earlier. Across the pond, revolutionary France had executed their king only four years ago. Perhaps Sellis was drunk on the taste of republicanism and liberty. Regardless of how at home he may have felt in a republic, Sellis's stay in New York was to be brief. About a year and a half after arriving, John Barker Church awoke one morning to discover his desk had been broken open and the contents robbed. He examined all the household servants with his valet's assistance, But could not find the culprit. That is, until his attentions turned to the valet himself. Church suddenly recollected that on the night of the robbery he had been awoken by the noise of someone walking about in his room, which he believed must have been Sellis. He also found in Sellis's possession a hammer, the claws of which matched the marks made on his desk. Sellis was hauled in front of a magistrate for examination, but was released without charge due to insufficient evidence. Church nonetheless remained convinced of Sellus's guilt, and dismissed him from his service. According to his fellow servants, throughout this time, Sellus remained calm, and repeatedly said he did not mind being accused, as he knew he was innocent. Sellus was fired in late 1798, and returned to England, where he soon found employment again as a page to the Duke of Cumberland. Soon after returning, he married a woman called Mary Anne, and the couple had several children together. His former colleagues Sarah Wilson and Martha Perkins were almost as surprised to hear Sellis had married as that he had entered royal service, but they both hoped that his manners and character had altered after his marriage to an Englishwoman. And here we have one of those clues that may not have sat comfortably with Prero In discussing his marriage, Celis' former colleagues put a lot of emphasis on the fact that his wife was English, and therefore capable, of reforming Celis the foreigner we cannot ignore the possibility that xenophobia clouded how Cellus was regarded by his former colleagues and, later, by the jury. I came across one satirical print, made by Isaac Cruikshank in June 1810, which explicitly cast Cellus as murderous because he was not British. The blessed effects of preferring foreign servants to our own countrymen, reads the caption, beneath a picture of a savage-looking Cellus, With wide eyes and clenched teeth, wielding a bloody sword over the wounded Duke in his bed. Cruikshank would hardly have printed this if his audience was not receptive to such xenophobic opinions. And intriguingly, the accounts of Sellis's character given by his former colleagues from John Barker Church's household differ markedly from those given by people who knew him during his decade or so working for the Duke of Cumberland. Either he had changed, or the accounts of his behaviour in New York did not give a fair picture. Celis's widow Mary Anne testified, after his death, that Joseph had been a good husband, not embarrassed in his circumstances, a sober and domestic man, who never drank spiritous liquors, and never displayed any remote symptoms of derangement. Now, of course, Mary Anne was hardly impartial, but her description of her husband was corroborated by several of his colleagues. The valets to two of the Duke's brothers, the Dukes of Sussex and Cambridge, had both known Sellers for many years. One of these valets, Antonio Panzera, testified that Sellers had always appeared to him to be a very mild man and not addicted to drink. The other valet said he believed Sellers to be a quiet, orderly, sober man. Similarly, the Duke of Cumberland's third page, a James Powlett, testified that he had lived with Sellers for five years, and fought him a positive, obstinate man, but not particularly ill-tempered. Meanwhile, the Duke's under-butler, Thomas Strickland, had always found him a very civil man. A more professional opinion was given by Surgeon Thomas Jones, who was often in attendance upon the Duke's household. He testified that although Sellus had recently been anxious about the health of one of his children, he had never seen Sellus in a low or desponding mood, had never heard him complain of harsh treatment, understood he lived very happily with his wife, and never observed any symptoms of derangement in him according to his fellow servants the duke of cumberland had always been happy with cellus's work and cellus was something of a favorite it was always cellus who was selected to accompany the duke when he traveled the duke had arranged for cellus's family to have apartments in st james's palace with coals and candles in other words accommodation with heating and lighting inclusive and in the month prior to the violent events of 31st of may Celis had been excused from some of his duties on account of having a cold. The Duke of Cumberland, I should add, was not exactly renowned for his amiability and generosity. None of George Third's children could lay a claim to public popularity. They were a much derided and satirised bunch. While the eldest son, the extravagantly self-indulgent Prince of Wales, drew most of the public and press ridicule, his younger brother Ernest Augustus was the focus of darker scandals. Including that he had incestuously fathered a child by his younger sister, Princess Sophia. His reputation was not helped by the sinister appearance he had, owing to a long scar down his face, wounds he received fighting with the Hanoverian army in the wars against revolutionary France. The credibility of the rumors and accusations against the Duke of Cumberland are debated and often dismissed by historians. But despite this, the Duke does not seem to have been an easy person to work for for although the duke showed Celis some marks of favour, Sellus, for his part, appears to have been unhappy in his position. Several of the witnesses after Celis's death testified that he had repeatedly expressed a wish to leave the duke's service. Ferdinand Burtzio, a jeweller who often attended the duke, stated that about five months previously Celis had come to his house and asked Burtzio to look out for a new place for him. Burtzio had been shocked and told him, "'Good God, what do you mean to ruin yourself?' You must not think for yourself, you must think for your family. cellus's wife Marianne had had similar advice, when he told her, about two years before this, of his wish to leave the Duke. She had, by her own account, remonstrated with him, and reminded him of all the advantages for their family of him staying in service. The apartment, the coals, the candles. From that day on, cellus never mentioned the matter to his wife again. He did, though, repeatedly express his unhappiness in his employment to Antonio Panzera, valet to the Duke of Sussex, and Frederick Gravel, valet to the Duke of Cambridge. We even have evidence that sellis directly raised grievances with the Duke of Cumberland. In 1808, two years before his death, sellis wrote a letter to the Duke, begging not to be forced to ride in the open air upon the carriage box when the Duke was travelling. Sitting on a hard seat in the open, exposed to the changeable British weather for hours on end, was acutely uncomfortable the duke's brothers celis pointed out now either allowed their servants to ride in their carriages or sent them separately by the stage a public coach or in a private post chaise to quote the letter a copy of which was found and published after celis's death i most humbly entreat your royal highness to discontinue a thing which has preyed on my mind and has hurt me more than 10 years hard labor would have done although we don't have the duke's reply it appears that the request was not granted as mrs neal enlisting the favours that the Duke showed Sellus, cited the fact that in the month prior to his death, Sellus had been allowed to ride inside the carriage, instead of outside, because of his cold. The implication being that until that point, and despite the letter, Sellus had continued to ride on the outside. Yet, as uncomfortable as riding on the carriage box was, this was a comparatively minor source of vexation for Sellus. His real reason for wanting to leave the Duke was his bad relationship with his fellow page, his rival page, Cornelius Neal. The letter about the carriage journeys was not the only one found among Sellis's belongings. There was another, written in July 1809, and addressed to a Captain Stevenson. In this letter it is revealed that Sellis had recently accused Neal of theft. To quote the letter, Sir, I am extremely anxious to know His Royal Highness's decision concerning the evidence provided before you against Mr. Neal and I beg you, sir, to have the goodness to relieve me from this most disagreeable suspense. If I may, sir, judge from appearance, either his Royal Highness is not acquainted with what has been proved, or his Royal Highness has entirely forgiven him. Should the former be the case, sir, I hope you will have the goodness to acquaint his Royal Highness to the full extent of the roguery of this man, and here it may be necessary to say that the witnesses you have examined are all of them ready to take their oaths in a court of justice, and there to assert what they have already said before you. But, sir, should His Royal Highness have forgiven him, and then I must be under the most disagreeable necessity to beg His Royal Highness to have the goodness to dispose of me, as His Royal Highness may think proper, so that I may not have the mortification to live and act in the same room with a man I have convicted as a rogue, and with whom no human being is able to live upon friendly terms. Later in the letter, he provides more detail on what Neal was accused of. I have been told, sir, that Mr. Neil cheats His Royal Highness in everything he buys. This man is as great a villain as ever existed. No oath or promise is binding to him. He relates alike that which he must have sworn to keep sacred in his bosom, as he will a most trifling thing, and slanders and threatens with public exposure and large damages his benefactor and only maker of his fortune, just as he would one of his own stamp." Strong words, indeed, accusations that Neil was not just a thief and a cheat, but a blackmailer of the duke. So opposed to Neil was he, that Sellers provided the duke with an ultimatum. He must choose between his pages. Sir, to serve his royal highness I have always thought it my greatest honour, and to serve him in any situation, that his royal highness may be pleased to place me, shall always be the greatest pride of my life. But no longer can I live with this monster." Once again, the Duke does not appear to have taken any action in response to his page's letter. But Sellus continued to repeat his frustrations to his colleagues. To Frederick Gravel, Sellus complained that he was on ill terms with Neil and could not live with so great a scoundrel. To Antonio Panzera, Sellus confided he had passed many unhappy hours and that his situation was very uncomfortable on account of Neil, whom he could swear robbed and plundered the Duke. The problem was not just Neil himself, but Celis's perception of how differently the Duke of Cumberland treated his pages. Celis told Panzera that the Duke spoke sharply to him in Neil's presence, and believed he would be treated more kindly if Neil wasn't there. Neil also had all the perquisites of clothes from the Duke. In other words, he was the only one to get the Duke's hand-me-downs, which could be sold for profit. Cornelius Neil, you may remember from the start of this episode, was the page who first attended the Duke after the attack, and who, as we shall hear in the next episode, gathered a lot of the evidence that was used to prove Sellus had attacked the Duke. He was also a key witness for the coroner's jury, and his testimony revealed that Sellus's animosity towards Neil was more than reciprocated. Sellus, Neil claimed, had more reason than most to be satisfied with his treatment from the Duke. The Duke had always been kind to Sellus Neil claimed, and had never been angry with him, despite Sellus often using bad language to the Duke, In his testimony, Neal said that in his view, Celis was malicious, and had planned for Neal to be accused of the Duke's murder, to get him out of the way. Neal's description of Celis is quite different from those given by the other servants. With one exception, Neal was backed up by his wife, Anne. She described Celis as obstinate and quarrelsome, a man who would never admit fault and could not bear contradiction, even from the Duke. The Duke had been very kind and partial to Celis, and Mrs. Neal could think of no reason why Sellus should have a grudge against him. So all the servants gave broadly positive accounts of Sellus as being a civil and calm man, except for Mr. and Mrs. Neal. Then there is the other inconsistency. Both Sellus and Neal claimed that the other man was the Duke's favourite page. This, despite the fact that they also both claimed the other page treated the Duke badly. Sellis was accused of using bad language to him, Neil was accused of stealing from him, threatening him, and blackmailing him. Whatever the truth, clearly jealousy and one-upmanship heated their mutual animosity. Neil and Celis's strange relationship did not go unnoticed by the other servants. In fact, it scared some of them, due to the occasional glimpses of violent potential. One of the maids, Sarah Varley, testified that eight or nine months before the violent night, a poker had gone missing which, after several days, Varley found hidden behind the bed of the page-in-waiting. The Duke had three pages, Celis, Neil, and James Powlett. The page-in-waiting was the page on the rotor to sleep in the room next to, and attend upon, the Duke. According to Varley, when she found the poker, Celis was the page-in-waiting. A few days after this, Sarah Varley made an even more alarming discovery, a small pistol, wrapped in a green bag hanging from the same bed. It continued hanging there, in her recollection, until about two to three weeks before the attack on the Duke. The page James Powlett had also noticed the pistol, and was unnerved by it. About three weeks before the violent events of the 31st of May, Powlett told Neil that he felt very uneasy, as he had discovered that Celis kept a pistol at the head of the waiting page's bed. To Powlett's utter surprise, though, Neil replied, that it was in fact his pistol, and that he kept it close to the bed for safety. He would not sleep without it. Powlett was horrified. "'For God's sake, bring it out!' he cried. Neil was reluctant, but finally, on Powlett's urging, he retrieved the pistol, and locked it in a glass case in the page's room, to which only Neil kept the key. Whether or not Sellers had been the one to steal and hide the poker will never be known. But if that was him, then by Neil's own admission— Celis was not the only one who feared or contemplated a violent confrontation. One final intriguing note on this episode. A third person was present during Powlett and Neil's conversation about the pistol. Mrs. Neal. And yet, despite hearing all that passed between the men, and despite seeing her husband lock the pistol away, Just a few weeks later, Mrs. Neal would tell Sarah Varley that the pistol had belonged to Celis, so Sarah Varley testified. Celis, obviously, could not provide his own account of his character or his relationship with the Duke and Neal to the jury that assembled to determine the cause of his death, but there are enough inconsistencies in the accounts of those who knew him to cast doubt and suspicion on those who gave evidence, not least Mr. and Mrs. Neal who, as you will hear in the next episode, were central to the gruesome night's events. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. Part 2 of this story of a royal scandal will be released on Thursday 24th of March, so you don't miss it, please subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could spare a few seconds to rate or review the podcast on your favourite podcast app and spread the word to your friends and family. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfow. Resources used in this episode include the British Newspaper Archive, the British Museum's online collection and the Internet Archive. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin McLeod, Vivaldi's Winter performed by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, Signs to Nowhere by Shane Ivers, Mysterious String Quartet by Shane Ivers, and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod.